Well, if you are remaining in here, then we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. And I just want to remind you, uh, as you know, that we're filling up in here. We do have also an overflow room. And we are, uh, we talked last week about actually having a meeting on, I believe it's March 6th, on which we'll be voting for the, uh, to approve the funds necessary to knock out all the walls back in that area and make it one large area. We need that not only because on Wednesday nights we have 30 to 40 students in there, um, but we have about 30 people in there right now. And if you've been in that room, 30 people makes it warm and, uh, and cozy, uh, but that is just uh, one of the things that we're working with, and so just so you know, if, you're, if you ever arrive late, there's always more room in there, um, and then soon, at the end of this month, we'll be uh, beginning to make more and more room, so we can ask your prayers for that. Um, we're in Hebrews 12, so we're going to have your Bibles there. Uh, the title today is Keep Running the Race. And as I studied and just prepared, went through this text this week, I was just struck by how incredibly pastoral, gentle, and earnest the author is with this church. And we've seen it throughout the letter, but really today he's pleading with the church to stay in the faith. You see, because of persecution, trials, and suffering, the church has been tempted to abandon the faith and to go back to Judaism. If the Christian life is to be compared to a marathon, then they're on mile 20. Their lungs are burning, their stride has shortened, their knees are aching, they have blisters the size of silver dollars on the bottom of their feet, and they're now approaching Heartbreak Hill. It's the last big hill, and they're looking at it, and they're going, I can't, I'm too weak, I'm too tired, I am in too much pain. And so let me just say this as we're, we're coming into this text. There is tremendous, tremendous, tremendous joy in following Jesus Christ. In fact, there is, there is infinite joy that Christ offers us, but at the same time, the Christian life is hard. It requires perseverance. And so when we share the gospel, we must not present such a rosy picture that there's no room and no understanding of suffering also that takes place in the Christian life. We need to have a theology of suffering. Paul says in Acts 14 to the churches that it is through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. And so nothing that the church is going through is abnormal. If you're going through difficulties today, there's nothing abnormal about that. It's a normal part of the Christian life. And so as we come back to chapter 10, it's because of the difficulty, the pain, and the trials the church has been in that the author is coming and saying, you need to endure. You need to keep the faith and continue running the race. And so what I want to do is just kind of back up a little bit and help you see how he's prepared the church for where we're at today. At the end of chapter 10, he tells the church, your need is for endurance. And then, uh, as he moves into chapter 11, he gives Old Testament example after example after example of saints who have persevered in their faith, who have ran the race and finished the race. And then, after giving all these Old Testament examples that, in a sense, tell the readers, uh, tell the church, you're not alone. 
You're not the only one who's been on this path. There's all these saints before you who have ran through these trials also. He then, in chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, he directs the church's attention to Jesus. And he says, look to Jesus. And then in verse 3, he says, consider Jesus. Now, the author spent the previous 10 chapters on speaking about the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ. He has said that Jesus is our great high priest who has now come and sits at the right hand of God, giving grace to every single person who comes to him. We've read that Jesus is the great sacrifice who died in our place on the cross so that we would be forgiven and have everlasting life. He's made it clear that our hope is in Jesus, our confidence is in Jesus, our salvation is in Jesus alone. Everything is about Jesus. It's the point as he's been making his way through Hebrews. And then in verses 4 through 11 of chapter 12, the author corrects the church's understanding of their circumstances. The church thinks that their trials and the sufferings that they're experiencing is either God's punishment on them, or maybe it's just that God has forsaken them or forgotten them. And so the author says that is not the case. Rather, just as our earthly fathers have disciplined us for our good. He said, so the heavenly father, he disciplines us for our good so that we will be prepared for that time he returns and we will live with him for all of eternity. He says he wants the church to know that the difficulties that they're going through, their trials and sufferings, is not the absence of God's love, but rather it's the presence of his love. He's reminding the church that because of their faith in Jesus, they are children of God. They've been adopted into God's family. He is their everlasting father. Therefore, every action, every word, everything that God brings into their life is for their good. In fact, if you go back just to chapter 12, verse 10, a few verses before what we're going to be reading today, we read, God disciplines us for our good that we would share in his holiness. Everything that God does in your life is so that we will become more and more like Jesus. We share in the very nature of Jesus, so we'll be prepared when Christ returns. And so it's on that basis He now turns to the church and he says, don't stop running. Keep running. Don't give up. And so the main point we have today is because we desire to see God, we continue to run the race of faith. And that's what I want you to see today. We've been gifted. We've been promised the reward. The reward is God. And because of that promise, we run the race that we have been given. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stand. We stand at the reading of God's word. It is given to us for the purpose of equipping us for every good work that Christ would give us. So chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. He says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let me pray. Father, Father, I pray that we truly hear and understand today that you are our Father, and if we have placed our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, if we believe that he truly is the sacrifice that has come, that he has died on the cross so we could be forgiven, then we are your children. And you love us, and everything you bring upon our lives is for our good. And may we know that while we might experience here on this earth temporary suffering, we are promised everlasting, infinite joy because you have given us you. And that is the reward we look forward to. So, Father, I pray that we would run the race. I pray for every single person here that no matter what we are going through, what battles of discouragement and depression we are wrestling what difficulties we have endured, that sin would not take us away from you, but that your grace would persevere us and we would continue running the race. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so we have three points, that we're gonna, or three kind of headings that we're going to use today. And, and so the first one is stay in the race. That's the main point he wants to communicate in this first section. If you notice the word therefore in verse 12, this means that verses 12 through 17 is the response of faith to what has previously been written, specifically verses 1 through 11. And so what is that response? If you look at verse 1, he says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, or, and make straight paths. Not verse 1, but verse 12. These commands, they give us insight into the present morale of the church. Drooping hands and weak knees are pictures of a runner who doesn't want to continue. Anyone here a runner? Yeah, I used to do that. That's, yeah. I don't do that anymore. Um, so you, you get this. When your hands are drooping, when your knees are hurting, you feel worn out, and the author is telling them to make your path straight now, meaning run straight. Because the church has taken their eyes off the prize, off of the goal, off the reward, and they've focused on the circumstances and their pain, they've gotten off the path. They're now, instead of on, on the narrow path that God has given, they're running through potholes and alleyways, and they're encountering all this pain and destruction. And so what is, and so what, um, and so we look at what is it that the author has said that is now meant to encourage the church who feels their hands are heavy, their knees are hurting, they're, they're off the path. So what has he said that now encourages them that they're actually are able to be strengthened? And to know that, you gotta go back to verse two in chapter 12. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then look at verse 3. Consider him. Consider Jesus, who endured from, such, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's calling us to focus all of our attention on Christ. I mean, again, we've already said it. The first 10 chapters have all been about 
Jesus. He is the final and full revelation of God. Jesus is the one who created and sustains all things. Jesus is the one who is infinitely greater than the angels. Jesus is the one who dies in our place so that we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. Jesus is our high priest who now sits at the right hand of the Father, promising to give grace to every single person who comes to him. So just so you know, if you're struggling today, if your hands are heavy, if your knees are hurting, he says, if you come to Christ, he gives grace. Jesus also, we are told, our perfect sacrifice who died on the cross for us so we could be forgiven. So how does this strengthen us then? So he's telling us, remember Jesus, look to Jesus, consider Jesus, now be strengthened. The author is not just saying have positive thoughts. This isn't some mental exercise that he's saying, okay, if you just say the word Jesus enough times, then you're just going to uplift your spirit and you'll be good. This is an act of faith. And we have to see it that way. If we have faith that Jesus truly is the Son of God who came to be our sacrifice and to be our high priest, and if Jesus is the one who has saved us so that now we would be children of God, And if that is true, then then we know that the trials we are in is not God's punishment, but rather they're an act of his love, preparing us to be with him for all of eternity. If we believe those things, meaning not just that we have knowledge. Remember, Jacob's up here, and he says, I had knowledge of God. But there's a difference between having knowledge and then actually believing and trusting in that knowledge. So it goes beyond just mere mental capacity And so he says, if you truly know these things of Jesus, if you look to him, if you consider him, if you know that your hope is in Jesus alone, then stay in the race. You must keep running. It is the only response of faith that one can have. That's what it means now when he says, be strengthened. Look to Jesus. Remember him. Consider him and all that he has done for you. And as you do that and you believe in that, You will continue to run the race, not because of your strength, but because you know that Jesus, as your high priest, gives you grace to run every single step. And we we see this all throughout Scripture, where we are told to stay on a narrow path. Because all throughout Scripture, we see not only Israel, which is what uh, Christina was talking about today, and Numbers, where, where the... Israelites are grumbling because of God. They're not, he's not doing what they think he ought to do. And we see all throughout the Bible that we will often get off the narrow path and go to a different path, some type of detour. But Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus says, stay on the narrow path. Keep running this race, this path. Proverbs says the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 25. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. The message of Proverbs is run this way. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. Don't be distracted. There is one course, one race, one path, one Jesus. 
Deuteronomy chapter 5, when Moses is giving, um, once again, the Ten Commandments to Israel, preparing them to go in the promised land, he says this, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall not walk in all the way. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land and you shall possess. Regularly throughout Scripture, we're told, run this path. Stay on this path. This is the only path that leads to everlasting life. There are lots of other paths. There's lots of other detours. But there's only one that leads to everlasting life, and that is Jesus. And we need to realize that sin will always distract us from Jesus. Sin will always try to take us uh, and deceive us, and to remove us from trusting in the promises of God's word. Sin will say, there's a better way. There's an easier way. Do you remember when Jesus comes into the flesh, and he goes into the wilderness, and Satan tempts him? What's his temptation? You can, you can bow to me. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. So rather than go to the cross, I'll give them to you right now. You just have to bow to me. You can have all the kingdoms without the cross. Satan always promises another way. And sin will always make promises. And it may even give you temporary joy. But it always leads to everlasting destruction. And so the regular word and truth of Scripture is run this way. Run after Christ. And notice the last half of verse 13. This is really good. It says, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And the word lame means crippled. So again, think, you're running, you're on mile 20, everything hurts. Or if you're like me, you're on mile one, and everything hurts. I mean, let's, let's be real. Some of us are never getting to mile 20. Um, taking our eyes off of Jesus and getting off the narrow path results in injury. That's where the church is. They're hurting. They don't want to go forward. But notice where the healing is. It's on the path. He says, verse 13, stay on the path so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So where is healing promised? It's promised on the narrow path, on the path of Christ. So he says, all this, all, all sin is going to continue to promise you these detours, these other paths, but you will only experience pain. The only way to experience healing from that pain and everlasting life is to come back and follow Christ. Sin wants us to focus on our circumstances, on our pain, on our trials. And when we do that, we will stumble. When we take our eyes off of Christ, when we pull back from the church, when we stop reading God's word, when we cease to pray, when we're not engaged in community, we will begin to experience spiritual troubles. We will stumble, and our hands will grow heavy, our knees will hurt. And so one thing we need to do that is ask ourselves, are we doing what the church in Hebrews is doing? Are we off the narrow path? Have we taken a detour? Are we on the wide path of destruction? I want to encourage you to think through that. 
Because there's times as Christians, we take our eyes off of Christ, like the church in Hebrews, and we begin walking on a different path. And so the author is pleading, come back to this path. Come back to Christ. Fixate on Christ. Do not be distracted by all these things of the world. So I just ask you, are you being distracted? Maybe you're two or three steps down in our path, or maybe you've gone several miles, but the message is the same. Repent and come back to Christ. Look to Jesus. There is only one path that leads to life, and it is Christ. And so what does it look like then? if we fixate our eyes on Christ. Or, or to say it this way, what is the evidence that we're running straight? Like, that's good to know, right? Like, like, how do we know we're on the narrow path? We say, well, I trust in Christ, and that is what we want to say, but what is maybe some tangible things that we could know that we're running after Christ? And so that moves us to the next section where we're going to look at, so how do we run the race? In verse 14, he's going to give us two things that we can look to know. Are we on the narrow path? He says, strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness. Now, the word strive, it means hasten. It means to run after. So think of like a cheetah running down its prey. It's going after that at full speed. It is fixated on the prey it's going to take. Or think of a sprinter, a 100-meter sprinter, and he's running straight ahead. If he looks to the right or left, he will stumble. He'll be distracted. He's fixated on the finish line. He's running as hard as he can. Or Paul. Paul in chapter 3, verse 14 of Philippians. This is what he says. I press on. Same word. I strive. So he says, I strive toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, every day my goal is to work towards Christ. I'm running the path of Christ. And that's literally what the author is saying here. Fixate your eyes on Christ, and as you strive after him, you're going to pursue peace with others and holiness to God. Which means peace and holiness are not optional. These are not something we do in our spare time. These are not hobbies Rather, we go at them with great intensity and focus. We're to pursue peace with every person in and outside the church. The word holiness means that we're devoted to God. So the author is calling us to be fully devoted to God. That everything we do in life is to be for his glory. Which if you remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says that we should be living sacrifices. That everything we do in our life is meant to be for the very glory of God. And so Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is basically saying, you're to look to love others, and you're to love God at all times. Now that's the message we also see throughout Scripture. Matthew 22, verse 37, 39. If you remember this, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Paul, in Romans 12, makes it abundantly clear that we're to pursue love and peace with others. Listen, I just have several verses here. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So we're not just talking about inside the church. We're talking in and outside the church. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Romans 12, 18. If 
possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Spiritual health is always revealed in our love for others. Do you know that? You want to know, am I following after Christ? What did my relationships look like? This is why we pursue peace with everyone. Now, it doesn't mean peace is always possible, right? doesn't mean it's always possible. That's why Paul says in, in 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, your goal is to have peace with everyone. Not everyone wants to have peace with you, but your goal is to strive after having peace with everyone. This is why pompous, rude, arrogant, hostile people have no place in the kingdom of God. As Christians, we've been saved to reflect Christ in every way. Do you know that? In fact, that's one of the reasons that, that we experience discipline. God will bring discipline into our life, trials, circumstances, events that, that hurt for the purpose of revealing where we're arrogant, where we're rude, where we're prideful, where we trust more in ourselves than in others. We're to display the character of Christ. We're to be humble and lowly and gentle. In fact, this is what, this is what Peter says. He says, for to you, or for to this, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So he says, Jesus left us an example of how we're supposed to live. He says, so you might follow in his steps. This is 1 Peter 2, 22. He says, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus came, and when he was beaten, when he was spit upon, when he was crucified, he did not, did not return anger, with anger or hostility, but he was kind, he was lowly and gentle. Now, I do realize, and this is mostly to you guys, although women, I think you need it also, but being a guy, I know how I wrestle with this. Um, words like humility, gentle, gentleness, and lowly are like amazing, aren't they? I mean, that's like what excites us as men. Now, I don't hear women laughing. I don't think a single guy laughed right there. Um, so like we, we have to realize that the culture has presented this way that a man is supposed to look, and that way will always be different than what Scripture says. It's always different. But Scripture is presenting us with gentleness and lowliness, compassion, kindness, that we'd be humble. And that is hard, I think, for all of us, but men— it's hard for us, especially when we, we live in a world that says, a man is to act this way. We're to be strong this way. We're to be tough this way. We're to be dominant this way. We're, we're to continually to exercise our levels of authority in this way. And, and yet, Christ comes. I want you to just think, Jesus, the Son of God, infinite and eternal, the one who by his very words created everything by his words sustains everything with his words spoke and the heavens were open and the entire world was flooded with the breath of his nostrils we're told that the red sea parted 
with his word, the walls of Jericho come crashing down. When Jesus was on earth, he looked at people and said, you're healed, get up and walk, and the lame walked. He called Lazarus out of the grave. He's the one that we're told in Revelation 19 will return on a horse with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, picturing the power of his words. And with his words, all enemies will be destroyed and defeated at that time. There's not a war. Like, Revelation 19 doesn't present a war like Armageddon's going to happen and we're on the sidelines going, who's going to win? Is it Jesus or this? No, Jesus shows up on a horse and with his words slays the enemies. Infinite power. And he displayed his glory on earth through grace and humility and kindness and lowliness. So when we push against humility and lowliness and kindness for the purpose of striving for peace with all. When we resist that, you're not resisting me. You're not resisting some man. You're resisting the very word and character of God. We need to know that. And God brings discipline into our life to shape us in to the very image of Christ, that we would embrace this humility, that we would strive for peace. We wouldn't strive to be right all the time. I think we can all relate to that, whether it's men or women, right? We often just want to be right. And so often we can be right so much that we are very, very wrong. And we can do great injury to others by trying to show how dominant and how right we are. Rather, we're to show gentleness and lowliness and kindness of Christ. We pursue peace and we pursue holiness. Now, the author is not telling us we earn heaven by these actions. You know that. We are not earning heaven. Holiness is not a condition for salvation. It is a consequence of salvation. Do we understand that? You've been saved that you are holy, and now he's saying live out your holiness. Not try to be really holy, and then at the end, we'll see if where the scales weigh. Hopefully you get in. No, he says, you are holy. Now live out your holiness. Pursue that which God has made you. Striving for peace and holiness is the evidence that you are keeping your eyes on Christ, that you are running the narrow path. And notice the promise given to us who pursue peace and holiness. Look at the end of verse 14. Without which no one will see the Lord. What's the reward? We get God. You hear that? That's the promise. The eternal, infinite, all-powerful God who came in the flesh, died on the cross for you, says, I have died for you, saved you, that you would then spend eternity with me, made into my image, that you would share my very nature and the infinite amount of joy that I have. I will satisfy you forever lasting. Ephesians 2, 7 says that for all of eternity, referring to not only now, but into eternity, into that new heavens, new earth, he will forever pour forth his grace on our life, satisfying us for all of eternity with himself. That's the promise that he gives us. 
He doesn't say, and I'll give you this possession, this over here, this over here, as something apart from him. No, he says, you are a child of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. You share in everything that Christ has, even the very presence and the very glory of God. He promises us infinite joy. That's the reward. That's why we run. So he's saying, because you've been saved by this God, to be with this God, run this race on this path, and don't ever get off of it. This is the only path that leads to infinite, everlasting joy. But now we come to the last point. And this is one we all need to know. We are to help others to run the race. So we've been saved to run the race. We know what it looks like to run the race. We pursue peace. We pursue holiness. But we don't just run so we get to the end by ourselves. That's not the point. We're not going for our personal PR. Personal record, just, you know, athletes out there helping you out. We're not going for our best time. We're not seeing how many people we can leave behind us. We're seeing how many people we bring with us. That's the whole point of now verses 15, 16, and 17. We help others run, and he's been emphasizing that throughout the whole book. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how are we not hardened? By the encouragement of others. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. How do we not fall by the same sort of disobedience? We strive together. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we do good works? Because we spur all of us on for it. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There are some Christians who hop from church to church to church to church to church to church, never committing, never being a part. And they wonder why they experience so much difficulty. We're called to be together. We're called to be committed to a family, united with brothers and sisters who are pouring into us, and we're able to pour into others as well. One Greek commentator, he said this. His name is Theophylact. They have hard names. Um, He says, the text puts it in terms of a band of travelers engaged in a journey and notes that they must periodically make sure that everyone is still there. Has anyone fallen out, he asks. Has anyone been left behind while the others have pressed on? That's why this letter is written. It's not so you get to the end by yourself and say, yes! But it's so that we get there together. Hebrews 2.1 Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. He's calling us to think about the gospel. Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest anyone should fail to have reached it. Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest, so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews 6, we read that there are some who are given every, who have every sign of faith, but they will fall away never to return book of Hebrews shows us apostasy is real, and it actually hits on a theme that we see throughout Scripture. And I encourage you, we don't have time to unpack apostasy again, but if you go back to Hebrews 6 sermon and Hebrews 10 sermon, which are on our website, you can go back there and see how we unpacked those passages. 
and showed from God's word what it means. But here, here is the Cliff Notes version because we have to at least give that. According to scripture, we believe true believers in Christ will persevere in their faith. But there are many, 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 and there are some here today who outwardly will show all the signs of faith in Christ, but in reality have never trusted in Christ. If you were asked right now, are you a Christian or not a Christian? You'd say, I'm a Christian. But then there's things that happen in your life, trials that will take place, things that will come which you will then walk away from the gospel at some point. And so the warning passages that we have here in the book of Hebrews are meant to prick us. They're meant to awaken us for our need to Jesus. They're meant to make us uncomfortable. They're meant to say, why, why is he right? So target, so targetly, so targetly, we'll make that a word. Raymond, is that a word? Today it is. He's like my, my word guy. Can't even think on that one, targetly. That's a horrible one. That's why I write stuff down. I didn't write that at all. Um, but he, he specifically is speaking to the Christian church, knowing that there are those in the church who at this moment would fully say they are Christians. But just like we read in 1 John 2, 19, that it's only when they leave us that we know that they were never of us. So he's wanting us to know, are we in the faith? We're all to wrestle with that as we go through Hebrews. Have I trusted in this Jesus? Not just do I know facts about him. Not can I answer, you know, multiple choice questions about him. But do I know him? Do I love him? Do I believe in him? Am I fixated on him? Am I running after him every single day? Because there are people who will fall away. And so he's going to give us three uh, reasons why people will get off the narrow path and stop running. He doesn't give us these three reasons, so we know how to categorize people. Oh, Jim left because he fits in reason one. Sally left because she's in reason two. Like, that's not the point. He gives us these reasons so we'd be on the lookout. Because we care for one another, because we love one another. We're called to run together. In fact, one reason we do church membership because it's a formal commitment we're making to one another. We're committing to run with one another. We're committing to lock arms with one another. We're committing to finish, or to get to the finish line together. And so as we look at these reasons, these temptations, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Number one, am I being tempted this way? I just want you to think, am I being tempted in whatever way he's, he's depicting? And if you are, then I encourage you to go to someone, ask for prayer and encouragement today. Number two, do I know someone who's being tempted this way? And if that is the case, go to them, get involved, love them, and pray for them. So two questions. Am I falling into this temptation? If you are, then, then we want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to come alongside you. Do I, do I know someone? Number one, temptation to give up. We see that in verse 15, the very first part. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God first temptation is really just a call, be alert, church. We're to be like lifeguards. We're on alert so that we watch everyone in the pool so no one drowns. That's what we do. So, so this first one, make sure no one fails to reach the finish line. So we're, we're looking at each other. We're knowing one another. 
We're committed to the church. We're showing up when the church is, when we're here together. We're a part of table groups and all these other things. Not because we try to fill up our calendar with church events, but because we're together. Because there's a value and a need of us being together. So that we know when someone stops reading God's word, or when someone stops praying, or when someone stops stops gathering with the church, or someone stops displaying joy. They have an attitudinal change. Their emotions have changed. Anger and bitterness have begun to set in, or an indifference to life, and we, we move towards them at that moment. So just think through that. Are, are you, does that characterize you at all? Do you know someone that that characterizes? We don't just stand by and say, yep, I know people. No, as Christians, we've been united to the body of Christ, so we go to them. That's number one. Number two, temptation of bitterness. We see this in the second half of 15. It says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So what is this root of bitterness? I'll give you two options. I could go with both of them. It could be one or the other. Number one, it could be due to the difficult circumstances the church has gone through. Many have become bitter. They're angry. They're grumbling. They become like Israel in the wilderness. Well, God hasn't done what, he, what I thought he was going to do. And so they're mad. They're mad at God. They're mad at the church. They're angry. I think that that fits the context really well. But there could be another one. In Deuteronomy 29, 18, Moses warns Israel about worshiping false gods. And he specifically says those who do that are a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Which is kind of the exact terminology we have here. And we know that the temptation here in Hebrews is that, hey, maybe rather than following Jesus, we'll go back to Judaism, which denies Jesus is the Son of God. So that would be a false teaching. So that could fit the context as well. And regardless of which one we want to maybe side with more, or we just say, I think they're both really good, I'll take them both, Um, what we see is that there's an effect. And notice what happens, and by it, many people become defiled. See, one reason when, when someone becomes angry or upset with God or begins to fall into false teaching, we don't just step back and say, well, let's just see what happens. Like, let's see if they fix it themselves. That's like when you tell your kid and they come to you and say, hey, how do you spell a word? You get, well, go find it in the dictionary. That never works. If I knew how to spell it, I want to go in the dictionary. But that's what we do with people in the church. They're struggling. We say, well, go figure it out. But what, if, what happens if they do that? For one, they're getting off the narrow path. And two, they're going to pull other people off the narrow path. So we engage them for their sake and the sake of the church. Three, the temptation of comfort. Verse 16, he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. It'd be great just to like spend an entire passage just on here or sermon. Um, we read about Esau in, in the book of Genesis. Esau is Jacob's brother. We read about him in chapter 25. Uh, he comes home from hunting. He's famished. He wants some food. Jacob has food. And this is what we read. It says, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now, just so we understand, his birthright, he's the firstborn. He's the one 
who according to, to the way they would think that the promises of God would go from Abraham to Isaac to Esau, that all the blessings that God had promised would then pour forth through the line of Esau. And Esau, or Jacob says, I'll give you the soup for all those promises. I'll give you the soup. So I'll be the one through whom those promises all come through. So Esau says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. You can see just brothers going at it here. So he swore to him and sold, birth, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's not that he despised you know, the birthright in itself, but the valuation of it, the worth of it. And so by despising the value and the worth of the birthright, he despises God. I'd rather have soup than God, is what he just said. And what we see is that there's a temptation for comfort, that we can be driven by sex, by stuff, and by soup. It, it happened in Scripture. And there's a danger that, that our money, that our lust for power, our lust for possessions, the things of this world will distract us, promising us you'll have everything you want if you come after me. This is what John Calvin said. He said, There are those in whom the love of the world so holds sway and prevails that they forget heaven as men who are carried away by ambition, addicted to money and riches, given over to gluttony and entangled with other kinds of pleasures, and give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns. So you got to wrestle So, Where am I at with possessions? Where am I at with my love for the world? And we're not against stuff. We're not against soup, right? But we're against those things becoming the first thing. Christ is the one we run after. Christ is the one that we pursue. And all those things fall in line in and under Christ. But the moment they replace Christ, those things become idols. And notice what we read at, the, in, at verse 16 or 17. For you know that afterward, when he despised, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And we've seen that again in chapter 6. There are some who upon walking away from God, it would be as if they would have to re-crucify Christ to come back. They will never, ever return. We see the same thing in chapter 10. There are those who have walked away from Christ. They will never, ever come back. There is a hardening that takes place. So this isn't saying Esau truly humbled himself and really wanted to come back to God and believe in him. No, he had a worldly grief, not a godly grief. He wanted what he wanted. He wanted what he missed out on, not the value and worth of God. And when we come back to God like that, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if anything else, we are told here that repentance has a time limit. And we know that time limit is either by death or when Christ returns. If we've not repented, then we will not be with Christ. So the author is reminding us, run the race. Don't be distracted by anything else. We've been promised God. God himself is the reward. 
Not God's possessions, not, not other things, but God himself promises, you will live with me forever, share in my joy, in my life, in my very, very love in nature. Why would we ever get off this path? Stay in the race. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Help others to keep their eyes on Jesus. Pursue peace, pursue holiness, and look each and every day to the reward of God. That's the message of Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. So I'm going to pray, and uh, we're then going to take communion in a few moments. And the ushers will dismiss you, so you'll come row by row, you'll take it, and then you'll go back to your seats, but we'll then take it all together at once. Let me pray. Father, Father, you have saved us by grace, and you give us grace to run after you. And so, Lord, I pray for every person here that we would run after you, that we would pursue holiness, we would pursue peace, we would stay on the narrow path, fixated on your son, Jesus. God, and may we have eyes to look out for one another as well, that together, as a church, we would run this race. God, may you increase our love for one another. May you increase our commitment to each other that we would commit to the church and to being a part of things like table groups for the very purpose of knowing one another, loving each other and spurring one another on so that on that day that you return, we will all be at the finish line together. God, you are glorious and gracious and good. Nothing in this world compares to you or with you. And so, Father, give us the grace. Give us the strength. May we run after you every day. May we help one another run after you. In your name, Jesus, amen.